Uh, great to see everybody. Um, thank you so much for coming on uh, the Zoom. So today uh, we're starting a series on the Illuminate um, Forum, which is a series talking about strange Talmudic stories. And it's an interesting topic because one of the unique features of the larger Talmudic project is the idea that there's an interconnectedness between the narrative sections of the Talmud and the legal sections of the Talmud, meaning you can in theory be studying part of the Talmud talking about dense halachic issues, and all of a sudden you could be transitioning almost immediately to a pretty wacky story. You know, for example, in Masechet Brachot, you could be talking about the details of Kriyat Shema, then like almost instantaneously you're talking about sedibed-headed monsters, other weird things going on, and the larger question becomes, well, wait a second, what are we supposed to do with these stories? And there's a lot of different ways to navigate this question, but what I want to talk about today is sort of a unique feature of the, some of these stories and some of these statements, that some of these stories and some of these statements, while they, they may seem to be quite strange, right, actually do begin to impact our daily halachic life. They begin to impact normative Jewish practice. And I think what's happening is they're forcing us through these types of sort of strange applications to, for, to confront some issues of Jewish theology that may get lost in the context of normative Jewish practice. So what I want to talk about today, uh, I'll, I'll reference, uh, I'll share a screen in a second, but what I want to talk about today is the question of whether or not angels understand Aramaic. You may say, well, how am I supposed to know that? Right? I don't have any access to angels, right? I don't have any direct, I can't make a phone call and call up an angel, right? So how could I possibly know if angels understand Aramaic? And then you could say, well, if I do understand whether angels understand Aramaic, why does it matter? So I'll pose the following question to you. If you open up any sitter, right, and you look in the instructions that they have before the different parts of the davening, you'll see an interesting feature. So for example, on Shabbos morning, after we take out the Torah, we put it away, we say two paragraphs called Yakum Porkan. Okay? Those are two paragraphs that are in Aramaic. If you use an article sitter, for example, you'll see that it'll say that if you're praying by yourself, meaning you couldn't make it to shul, you skip these paragraphs. Okay? Now, why? Why can't you say these paragraphs while praying publicly? The paragraphs address uh, larger you know, attempts to bless the community. But why should that matter, right? Why should it matter? You can bless the community even if you're at home. But the simple reason is because it's an Aramaic. And the rule is, is that we don't say private prayers if they're said in Aramaic, okay? So you may say that seems kind of strange, and it does seem kind of strange. But this idea of not saying prayers in Aramaic privately has its roots in a very strange passage in the Talmud. Where the Talmud says that angels don't understand Aramaic, okay? So you may say to yourself, well, what exactly is going on here? Why in the world do we care whether or not angels understand Aramaic? And more specifically, even if we do care, right, why should that in any way impact normative halachic practice? So I'm going to share a screen for a second, and we'll start to unpack this topic, okay? Basically, if you look at the screen I'm sharing here, I'm not going to read all the sources inside, but they're all here in case you want to take a look at them. Basically, what's going on is a very interesting historical evolution of a sugya that begins with a very simple statement in the Mishnah and eventually takes on a life of its own through a statement of uh, Rebbe Yochanan. And through that, right, becomes the medium through which we experience 
normative Jewish practice today? So here's the larger question, right? The larger question is, are you allowed to pray in the vernacular? Seems to be a pretty innocent question. Now, the Mishnah, which is source number one on the page, explicitly says that prayer can be recited in any language, okay? Explicitly. Now, why is that the case? Why can prayer be recited in any language? So in source number two, the Gemara says, the reason why prayer can be recited in any language is because prayer is, by definition, an attempt to access divine mercy. Okay, It's an attempt to call out to God. So the Gemara says it, it wouldn't make sense right, to limit people's uh, linguistic options to just Hebrew, because most Jews, even at the time of the Gemara, did not speak Hebrew. So if you limit their options to just Hebrew, how are they possibly going to beseech God and ask for mercy? So the Gemara claims, basically, since the whole purpose of prayer is to beseech God, it wouldn't be logical to limit the linguistic options. And therefore, the Gemara says that since prayer is ultimately about divine mercy, you can ask God in any language you want to pray right, for whatever you need. So it sounds like from the Mishnah, and it sounds like from the Gemara, there is no limitation at all at praying in any language. You want to pray in Latin? Go for it. You want to pray in Greek? Go for it. You want to pray in Yiddish? That's the best. Okay? But the idea basically is, is that there's no limitation at all on what language you want to pray in. You want to pray in English? It's all good. That sounds to be, that sounds like that is the default position of the Talmud. But then the Talmud asks an interesting question. This piece I'll look, show you inside because you may not even believe me. Talmud says, the tefillah, I'll, I'll, I'll highlight it here. Okay? It says, the tefillah lashon. Is it true that prayer can be said in any language. The Gemara says, That can't be, because Rabbi Yehuda says, you're not allowed to pray in Aramaic. Okay, now why can't you pray in Aramaic? So Gemara calls Rabbi Yochanan to Amar Rabbi Yochanan, okay. that if you pray in Aramaic, you're going to be in, have a problem. Why? Because the angels don't like Aramaic. For whatever reason, the angels have a problem with Aramaic. And the angels won't serve as intermediaries between you and God if you pray in the language that they don't like. Okay? Now, so the Gemara says there's a tension here. On the one hand, the Mishnah says you can pray in any language. On the other hand, the Gemara says that you can't pray in Aramaic. So how do you harmonize it? The Gemara says it's not a problem. Why? The Gemara says if you're praying privately, you're limited to prayer in anything but Aramaic. If you're praying publicly, you can pray in any language, including Aramaic. What's the distinction? So the way it's explained basically is when you're praying in public, you have more force to your prayer. The Gemara says that public prayer is always answered. You don't need the angels as the intermediary, right? And therefore, you don't care if they don't speak Aramaic. You can, you can dispense with them. But when it comes to praying in private, there your prayer is weaker. If your prayer is weaker, so you need more help. If you need more help, who are you going to turn to? So you're going to turn to the angels. And the angels are going to be your medium through which your prayers are brought to God. Okay? And this is how the Gemara ends. The Gemara ends seems to imply that Aramaic is off the table, right? But if it's in public, it's okay. Okay? Now, what's interesting about this is that if you move on from the Talmudic period to the Middle Ages, you see that this is a debate. For example, in source number three, I quoted from the Riff, or the Riff lives in the 11th century. He's somebody living in Sephardic countries, Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi. And he understands the problem to be not only about Aramaic, but any prayer in the vernacular, right? 
His claim basically is, why does the Talmud mention Aramaic? Because that was the default language of the Talmud. But angels don't like any non-Hebraic prayer, right? And therefore, ideally, you should never pray in the vernacular. You should only pray in Hebrew. However, if you want praying in public, we don't need right the angelic intermediary. In that circumstance, right, you are allowed to pray in the vernacular. It doesn't matter whether it's Yiddish, Hebrew, or English. I'm sorry, Yiddish, English, or Russian, for that matter. Okay. Now, what you see here is an interesting development in the history of halacha, right? Because presumably in the Mishnah, there's no problem at all with praying in the vernacular. And also, you get to the Gemara, and the Gemara throws this nugget. Which, you know, I saw some of you when I read it, you started to chuckle, which makes a lot of sense. But I, I chuckled, too, when I read it for the first time. And the Gemara says that there's some problem with Aramaic, which, you know, some commentators understand to be problem with the vernacular. What's the problem with the vernacular? Problem is the angels don't understand it. OK, now you may say, well, I don't really care about the angels. OK, what the Gemara is doing here is an interesting thing. The Gemara is basically trying to say is that in the Talmudic understanding of the cosmos, right, there are angels. Right. It may sound weird to talk about angels in the 21st century, but in the Talmudic mindset, the way the cosmos are constructed, right, there are these things called angels. Now, what the angels are is for a different time. But the idea basically is, is that we can't deny the existence of angels if we are observant Jews. And in fact, the angelic dimension of the cosmos has consequences right, for the way in which we pray, because to some degree, the angels are there to help us bring our prayers before God. And therefore, if the angels are being taught, are being prayed, hearing a language they don't understand, so they're not going to have the same power of bringing your prayers before God. Now, you may say, oh, this is a metaphor. It's a nice idea. It doesn't have any halachic context. But if you look, for example, source number three, which is the Rif, which is a classic code, one of the earliest codes of Jewish history, he understands this Gemara literally. And he understands that prayer in the vernacular, especially in Aramaic, is problematic because the angels don't understand this. Okay. Now, if you fast forward into Jewish history, people start to have a problem. What's the problem? Most Jews throughout Jewish history were not literate. Okay. So they didn't have access to protects, they didn't have access to sitters, and they, they couldn't pray in Hebrew. So if you limit their capacity to pray in the vernacular, especially at home, so what's going to happen is you're going to limit their ability to pray altogether. Now, what you could have said was, well, wait a second, let's dismiss this whole angel stuff. Let's just ignore it, right? But for some reason, the Gemara is not willing to ignore it, and none of the codes are willing to ignore it. For example, if you look at uh, source number four, Rabino Yonah, who's later than the Rif, he quotes from the French rabbis, who are trying to explain how can it be okay to pray, right, in your, the vernacular at home. So he tries to solve the problem by saying, listen, it's not a problem because the only time it's a problem to pray at, at home in the vernacular is you're reciting your own prayers, like personal supplications. If you're reciting the prayers that everybody says, even in public, that's not a problem. Okay, but what you see in source number three and source number four is that both of them solve the problem differently, but they preserve the integrity of the original statement, meaning nobody thinks at least until the time of the Beit Yosef, which again is talking about 16th century, nobody's considering the possibility that the angelic component is irrelevant. In fact, everybody's granting the angelic piece is significant. The only question is, how do you deal with it? Now, there was very one interesting way to deal with it that was that was written by the Rush, who's the source number four, the father of the tour, right, who lives after the Rif also. And he says, prayer in the vernacular is always okay, 
The only problem is Aramaic. Aramaic is specifically a problem, meaning sources three and four understand vernacular Aramaic to be a code word for vernacular. But source number five says, no, vernacular isn't the issue. The issue is Aramaic. And the way they explain it basically is because Aramaic is a not, it's not a pure language. It's like Yiddish, right? It's, it's, a, it's a language which is a hybrid, right? And the angels, for some reason, don't like hybrid languages. They like pure languages. And you may say, well, you know, how do I know that, right? How does the Gemara, how does the tour, how does the Beit Yosef, how does the riff know, right, what the angels like, right? I don't have an answer to that, but all I can show you is that this one statement, which appeals, appears fairly innocently, innocently in the Talmud, right, makes its way into halakhic discourse, so much so that both the riff in the 11th century, Beit Yosef quoting sources from the 16th century, and then even earlier, 12th, 13th century or so, 14th century in the rush, they're all assuming that somehow Aramaic is an issue, Aramaic is a code word for the vernacular is an issue. And somehow this statement, which seemed innocent, actually makes its way into halachic discourse. In fact, this is exactly how it's codified in the Shulchan Aruch. If you look in source number seven, this becomes normative law, which is why, for example, if you look in the art scroll, you'll see that every single reference to Aramaic, you find the sitter, is always omitted when you say the prayers privately. Okay, now that all comes from this one passage in the Talmud, which assumes that the problem is the angelic capacity to understand either the vernacular or specifically Aramaic. Okay, now what's even more fascinating about this is that this takes on another twist if you move deeper into the Middle Ages, right? Because what happens in the Middle Ages is you have this work called the Sefer Hasidim. The Sefer Hasidim has nothing to do with contemporary Hasidim. They did not wear, you know, long coats. They did not wear black hats, right? They were just pietists, right, living in the Middle Ages. And they raise an interesting point. They say, well, wait a second. You know, we understand the value of prayer in Hebrew. We understand the angelic limitations. But if you're going to pray in Hebrew, right, and you don't understand it, what have you ultimately accomplished? So you have here in source number six a passage from the Sefer HaChassidim, where the Sefer HaChassidim says that, if you're in a place where you can pray in English, just for argument's sake, or in Hebrew, right, and there's no problem with the angels not understanding, for example, it's in public. So the Sefer Hasidim says, it's better to pray in the vernacular, right? Why? He's a great line. He says, He says, prayer is ultimately an exercise in supplication. If you don't understand what you're saying, Mamo Ilo, what have you accomplished, right? So what's interesting is the first part of the Shear focused on the role of the angels in ushering our prayers before God. It may sound kind of wacky, may sound kind of strange, but for some reason, that is part of the Talmudic view of the cosmos, that the angels are active participants in helping our prayers come before God. But all of a sudden, in the Middle Ages, Tefra Hasidim comes along and says, well, wait a second, like independently of angelic intercession here, you have a larger question, which is, what is the purpose of prayer? Right. Is the purpose of prayer just right to, you know, beseech God? Well, it's also to have a dialogue. Right. And that Havana Saleb. And if you don't understand how you're dialoguing with God, what have you ultimately accomplished? Right. So if you take the, the whole package together, you can see that basically what happens is there's an awareness that prayer in the vernacular is allowed. OK. In public, because in public, you don't need angelic help. The question becomes, what about in, in public? Is it better to pray in Hebrew or the vernacular? So the Sefer Hasidim says, better to pray in the vernacular. If you don't understand the language, pray in the vernacular. You'll accomplish more. Now, obviously, in the time of the Sefer Hasidim, they didn't have, you know, the type of sitters we have, which have, you know, the Hebrew and the English side by side. So he may say nowadays it's better to pray in Hebrew. 
What's interesting is, is that absent the angelic component, it sounds like all the sources seem to imply that the ideal type of prayer is prayer which you understand. And presumably the prayer which you understand, right, is actually prayer in the vernacular, not prayer in Hebrew. Okay. Now, what's interesting is if you fast forward throughout Jewish history, you can see how this evolves also. For example, if you look at source number nine, you have a passage here from the Mishnah Brura. Mishnah Brura lives in the 20th century, 19th century in Russia. Okay. He's somebody who's exposed to communism and Zionism, other movements that try to challenge traditional Judaism. And he says, not like the Sefer Hasidim, he says, she says, even if you could pray in the vernacular, it's always better to pray in Hebrew. But why? Right? Why is it better? What do you accomplish by praying in Hebrew? Why is it better to pray in Hebrew? The logic of the Sefer Hasidim makes more sense. If the ultimate goal of prayer is to understand and have a supplicatory experience. So how does praying in a language you don't understand? How does it accomplish anything? Right? How does it accomplish the goal? So the Mishnah Brewer is unclear. He just says that it's better always to pray in Hebrew. Okay, now, if you look over here at source number 10, you can see what's motivating the Mishnah Brewer. The Mishnah Brewer here quotes from the Chatam Sofer. Okay, the Chatam Sofer is a Moshe Sofer. He predates the Mishnah Brewer, but he's a rabbi who is deeply invested in the fight against what? Reform. Okay, he's deeply invested in the fight against Reform Judaism. Now, one of the things that Reform Judaism did in its earliest iterations is it tried to make changes to a normative halacha that were not as intense in terms of the nature of the halachic violation. So, for example, if you're a Reform rabbi living at the time of the Chatam Sofer and you want the synagogue to look more similar to a church, what are you going to do? You're going to make the prayer service be in what language? The language of the church, the vernacular. Okay, so one of the things that early reformers did was they said, you know what? There's no formal halachic problem with praying in the vernacular. How do we know that? Because we saw, especially in the context of praying in public. So in that context, there's no problem at all. Right. Because there's no issue of angelic intercession. The only problem would be possibly right that you're praying in a language you don't understand. It comes to Mr. Brewer and he says, no, 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 no. He says the whole Talmudic allowance to pray in the vernacular is only a cry. It's only periodic. But he says to establish perpetual prayer in the vernacular, that's prohibited. And he says, why? Why is that the case? And he quotes from some earlier rabbis who were at the forefront of the battle against reform. And he says, basically, that praying in the vernacular perpetually is, in a certain sense, a slippery slope. It's a gateway to much more egregious halachic violations. And he quotes from the early reformers. He says, listen, these early reform rabbis, what did they want to do? All they wanted to do was pray in English. Not that big of a deal, pray in German. Not that big of a deal from a halachic perspective. But when they began that process of changing the liturgy, the next thing they started to change was all different references to Zionism and to Birka Yerushalayim, right, and Uvnei Yerushalayim Ircha, et cetera, et cetera. They started to um, omit passages to the Beit HaMikdash. So basically the idea was, he says, listen, the reason why it's better to pray in Hebrew is because at the end of the day, what we're trying to accomplish when we pray in Hebrew is not only to understand the words, right, but preserve the integrity of the original messages of the sitter. And the claim basically is that independently of the angels speaking Aramaic, we have a larger goal, which is to preserve the values of the sitter, 
And the second you start to pray in English, all of a sudden what's going to happen is you start to fudge with the different pieces of the prayer book. And by extension, what's going to happen is, right, the prayer book will simply be a conduit for larger cultural assimilation. So what you see here is that even though the Mishnah seems very clear that there's no problem praying in the vernacular, even though the Gemara says that absent Aramaic, there seems to be no issue. And even the people who think Aramaic is an issue or vernacular is an issue think it's not a problem if it's in public. And even though the Sefer Hasidim says that if you're praying in, in, in your vernacular and you understand it, it's better because you understand what you're saying. When you get to the rise of reform, there's a pushback against this vision. And the claim basically is, is that we have to preserve Hebrew at all costs. Why? Because Hebrew is perceived to be the language of traditional Judaism. In fact, if you look at other responsible literature, for example, Masrita Aish, he says explicitly, he says, the reason why Hebrew is so critical is because what's happening is Jews are becoming so poorly educated that the only access they have to Hebrew is specifically the sitter. He says, if you remove the sitter, then they will have no Hebrew education, right? They will be totally illiterate when it comes to the Hebrew language. What you have here already in the 20th century, in the Mishnah Brura, is an attempt to preserve Hebrew right, as the ideal language, even if you don't fully understand it. Now, there's another model that the Mishaburah also quotes later on. If you look, for example, at source number seven, the Mishaburah says there's another problem with English. He says all translation is, by definition, interpretation. And therefore, he says that the advantage of Hebrew as being the ideal form, right, of language we try and pray in is because the, the advantage of Hebrew is that it, by definition, captures the original intent of the authors of the prayer book. Meaning, whenever you translate, you're interpreting. And since you're interpreting, you're in choosing one interpretation over the other. And it lacks the linguistic integrity that the original text had. Okay, but what you see here, basically, is in a certain sense, polemics. Why? Because the Mishabura is living in a space where he wants to say, listen, in the Mishnah, Hebrew wasn't perceived to be such a big deal. The only thing we had to worry about was the issue of angelic intercession. So we can solve the problem of angelic intercession by saying, oh, if you're praying in public, it's not a big deal. By the time you get to the 20th century and he post enlightenment, right? And all of a sudden Hebrew is a code word for traditional Judaism, right? Hebrew takes on a life of its own. And therefore the claim is that even if you're praying in public where there's no problem and therefore you can pray in the vernacular, it's ideal to pray in Hebrew. Why? Because when you're praying in Hebrew, number one, you're preserving tradition and you're not allowing the vernacular type of prayer to serve as a conduit for larger attempts to sort of reform Judaism. And number two, you're preserving the integrity of the text. What you're trying to show basically is, is that the text in its most pristine form is being articulated through the original language. And you're not coming along to say that I'm going to choose interpretation A over interpretation B. And therefore, the question becomes for us as modern Jews, right, who inherited this tradition, we are all inheritors of these sources, right? On the one hand, and as you'll see next time you pray in shul, every time there are Aramaic passages, we skip them, right, in the context of the Siddiqs. We revive this element of the angels and forcing us, forcing us to confront our own theology and forcing us to confront our relationship to the rabbinic cosmos. But beyond that, the question becomes, how do we deal with prayer in the vernacular, right? If you want to pray, on the one hand, you want to pray in the vernacular sometimes because it's easier to access the words. On the other hand, you understand the value of prayer in Hebrew. So in the next five or seven minutes or so, I want to show you some strategies that preserve both of these simultaneously, okay? If you look, for example, at source number 12, this is an essay from Rav Yaakov Nagin. 
But he points out an interesting piece. He says that the Shmona Esrei, as we currently have it, right, preserves 18 themes that are essential for every Jew to reference. Okay? There are 18 themes, and the idea is the rabbis wanted these, these 18 themes to be the chorus through which you experience your day. Start your day with the 18 themes, middle of the day you re-engage the 18 themes, and you end your day with these 18 themes. Now, ideally, you should pray these prayers in Hebrew for all the reasons recited by the Mishnah Baruch. But if you look, for example, at source number 13, the Shulchan Aruch says something which oftentimes people don't know. Shulchan Aruch says that these 18 themes have fixed texts. So, for example, if you open up the article, Siddur, you'll see there are 18 prayers, and you have to say a certain liturgy. But the Shulchan Aruch says that if you want to, you're allowed to add a personal supplication that parallels the theme of the blessing, right, that you're saying in every one of those prayers. So, for example... Let's say you're saying the prayer Barech which is a prayer for uh, sustenance, for Parnassah. Okay? You say it in Hebrew. But then you want to add something. So the Mishnah says, the Shulchan Aruch says, before you say Baruch Hashem, what you're allowed to do there is add a personal supplication. And in, you can certainly do this in English, especially if it's in public. You can add a personal supplication that speaks to your own experience and basically connects the communal prayer that's said by everybody, right, with your personal experience of need for sustenance. You see this also in the art scroll. For example, in the art scroll in Rifa'enu, the bracha for healing, you'll see that right before you say Baruch Hashem, there's a little Yehirat zone over there, okay? And that can be said in any language, right? Now, especially when you're praying in public, because there, again, it's a personal supplication said in the context of communal prayer. So even though there's ideal, ideally you're supposed to say the prayer in Hebrew, by adding that supplication specifically in your language, you actually preserve the integrity of both models, right? You preserve the integrity of Hebrew being the language of the synagogue, the language of the sacred space. But you also preserve the sense, like the Sefer Hasidim said, that you want prayer to be prayer from the heart. And the way prayers from the heart is if it's something that speaks to you personally. How do you ensure that the prayer speaks to you personally? Well, you add your own personal supplication right before you say, Baruch Atah Hashem. So strategically, right, this is an example where if you're praying in private, it'd be hard to say these things in the vernacular. But if you're praying in public, certainly, private is debatable, but in public, certainly it's not a problem. This is the way to preserve both models of ideal Hebraic prayer with the attempt to say the prayer in the vernacular, thereby connecting your own voice to the default voice articulated by the sitter. And there's another strategy which people aren't aware of. If you look, for example, at source number 14, there's an amazing irony of history. The last part of the Shemona Esrei is a prayer that says, Elokai Nitzur. You may be familiar with that prayer. It's the last part of the Shemona Esrei, right after Sim Shalom. Okay? Now, this prayer has a fascinating history, and I'll tell you why. If you look in the Gemara and Dafi Zayim Brachot, you'll see that there's a whole list of prayers Personal prayers were recited by, by various Amoraim. Okay? Just personal prayers. One of them is prayer Elokinetsur. Okay. So now this is somebody's personal prayer, right? Imagine, for example, if you had a personal prayer and it was something you said privately. Then you woke up 500 years from now, and then you, you know, a thousand years from now, and you went to a synagogue and you realized everybody in the world is saying your personal prayer. Okay, so this is one of the ironies of history. What happened was, was that this Elokinetsur prayer was placed in the Shemona Esrei at the Wayan, okay, because it's supposed to be a prompt for somebody to say their own prayers. You say that prayer Elokinetsur, then afterwards, it's supposed to be a prompt 
to remind you that just like this rabbi, right, who had his own prayer in the time of the Talmud, so too I am allowed to speak my heart to God without any liturgic limitations. So I too can recite my own prayer. Now I can't say Baruch Hashem because it's a formal bracha. And in terms of reciting my own prayer, certainly there's no problem there reciting it in English. But what happened is over time, that prayer Elokinetsur became codified, but it became codified in a way that wasn't the original intent, right? It became codified in a way people now say it and forget that you're supposed to say it. But it's also supposed to remind you of the power of personal prayer at the end of Shemona Esrei, right? After you've recited all the formal blessings. So if you see, for example, here, that both the Shulchan Aruch, as I quoted you before, and that passage from Elokhanetzur are an attempt to remind you that you can preserve the integrity of Hebraic prayer. At the same time, use the vernacular to dialogue with God in different places intended in the Shemona Esrei to give you those access points. Okay, so let me summarize. What I want to show you up until now basically is, is that this is one of these examples where sometimes passages in the Talmud, which seem a little strange or a little kind of, you know, odd, right, oftentimes can make their way into halachic discourse and can force us to confront oftentimes our own theological anxieties. So I'm sure most of you, myself included, don't speak about angels all that much, but Angels are part of the biblical model. They're part of the rabbinic vision of the cosmos, and it makes its way in terms of how we conceptualize the nature of prayer to the point where we do believe on some level that the angels, right, are part of our capacity, right, to, to, uh, to, to, to allow us to access God, at least periodically. Now, again, there may be some theological problems with that, at least according to the Rambam, but that, that's for a, another shear. But that raises a larger question of, oh, wait a second, if we're so concerned with the angels, that means basically you have to primarily pray in Hebrew. So the question becomes, oh, wait a second, can you pray in Hebrew? <clears throat> Do you only have to pray in Hebrew, or are there other mediums that a person can pray? Now, I want to show you basically is that there are different times in the Shulchan and the Shemona Esrei where you can insert your own voice, even if, right, you're generally speaking somebody who prefers pray in Hebrew. And that would be an attempt to harmonize both models simultaneously. And the Shulchan Aruch is structured in a way to allow you effectively to be able to find that voice. I'll show you one last source just to end with this. There is a, a, a new trend now um, in, uh, in, 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 in different models of what's called Hidvodidut. Hidvodidut is a Hasidic attempt to pray outside the context of normal prayer. Okay, What's interesting about this comes from the great Hasidic master Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Right. And what's interesting is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was interested also in the same problem. And he talks about how because he, he wants his Hasidim to pray in Hebrew. Right. So he says you should pray in Hebrew, but you should talk to God in the context of Hippo to do in English, in Yiddish. OK. In his language. Right. This, again, is an attempt to harmonize both models. Right. So he says, he says in Yiddish, you can express whatever you want to say and, ex and can say whatever is in your heart. Right? So it's the same idea that on the one hand, he wants his community to pray in Hebrew. At the same time, he wants to preserve some element right, of, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of people being able to express themselves. And the way to do it right, is to basically allow you to make a distinction between formal prayer and personalized prayer. You know, I'll take some questions in the, uh, in the chat or anybody wants to raise their hand. Somebody writes, how do we know the angels not understand Aramaic? It's a great question. So I, I don't have any evidence absent that passage in the Talmud, right? There is that passage in the Talmud where it seems to be stated as a matter of course that the angels don't understand Aramaic. 
Now, again, it could be in general that Aramaic is just a code word for the vernacular, or it could be like the Rush says that it's not a pristine language. But absent that passage in uh, the Talmud, I don't know offhand of any other any other passage. But again, you can assume on some level that this may be related to uh, traditions that the rabbis had when it came to understanding the nature of the angelic cosmos. Yeah, Ruven. Yeah, so I, I forget which source said it before, but they said that it was uh, uh, an issue that uh, if you were to say it in your own language, you would be misinterpreting what the original uh, linguistic intention was. Um, right. But as an individual, either you don't know Hebrew or even you know Hebrew, individually, you're going to be interpreting it in some way, definitionally, definitionally in your head, that right. you, unless, you, unless you're the person who wrote the text, you're going to have some difference from what was uh, originally intended. Granted, it's not uh, perhaps on a public level, unless you tell people about the way you're interpreting it to yourself, but would it not be seen as, as an issue just by basis that I don't know exactly what was intended for every word in the right. in the Right. I, I think the, the answer basically is, is that um, that the, in terms of the efficacy of prayer, right, the verbalization is key. Right. So in other words, what happens in your head, right, it stays in your head, but the verbalization element is critical. So the claim basically the Mishabura is like, it's almost like, I mean, I don't really mean this literally, but it's almost in a certain sense like magic, right? In other words, like not magic in the, in the magical sense, but in terms of like the way it works, right? If you want prayer to be effective, you have to say the words properly, hit, right? Hit the original intent. So he thinks basically that, you know, you have to ensure yourself that you're saying the right words, right, that captures what the intent was. But you're right. It's a fair point that in terms of the experience of it could be the same thing. Somebody writes, so if I dive in private and add personal supplications, when I ask you, I should try to do that in Hebrew. So, yeah, I mean, I would I would try your best. I mean, try if you can. But if you can't, I think, uh, you know, there, if you look, for example, at the language of the Shulchan Aruch, so he quotes, um, he quotes different views about this. He, he's sort of vague. He even says that there are some people who say different things. So I think in, in general, you know, ideally, if you can say it in Hebrew, I, I personally try when I pray privately to say it in Hebrew. If you have no alternative, you know, I think uh, there, there are views to rely upon to, to say in English. But I think in general, that's sort of playing. That's exactly the tension that's being articulated. Yeah, Ruben. I, went, but I thought we had specific places in Shimon Israel uh, in uh, uh, um, uh, to, to insert our own uh, uh, prayers uh, uh, in Shomer Tfila. Yeah, right up before. Right, so is like the generic. It's like if you have like some extra prayers that weren't mentioned thematically, right? But for example, if you have a prayer for, well, for Parnassah or for healing, you should say it in the context of, if you have a prayer for redemption, you say in the prayer of redemption. If you have a prayer for righteousness, you say in the prayer for righteousness, right? But it should be case, it should be theme specific. If, if Let's say you, but let's say for example, you're praying for, I don't know, Sixers to win the Eastern Conference Championship. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody pray for that. I'm a Sixers fan, so maybe I would pray for that. Okay, but the idea basically is, is that as far as I know, there's no uh, reference to any of the themes of Shimon Esrei to the 76ers, right? So in that case, I'm, I'm just joking. But the idea basically is, is that if you have something that's not themat you know, thematically connected, any of the prayers, so Shomei Tefillah comes along and sort of says, oh, I can add into everything. Shomei Tefillah is like the generic. Okay, that's basically the idea. Okay. Um, any last minute questions? Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to uh, learning with everybody again. If you have any questions, always feel free uh, to email me. Thank you. All right, have a good night. Thank you, Rav. Bye. -bye.